Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast, Episode 113, Operation Merita, Part 1. Just days into the Battle of Yugoslavia, it was over. Well, meaning anything related to the stopping or slowing down of the next phase of the conflict, the War of Greece. Yugoslavia dissected and subdued its own internal factions, equally devastating as any German might, signed an armistice with Nazi Germany on April 17th. The war had only started on April 6th. The new king, King Peter II, just 17 years old, flew out of Yugoslavia to Greece, then to Palestine, thence to Egypt, and finally to the UK to join the ever-growing group of rulers or governments evicted from their own country by the Nazis. Indeed, this lightning warfare seemed to be the new way of things. Either one was prepared or they were not. No longer would come-as-you-are defenses suffice. Yet, that was exactly what Britain brought to the Greek mainland. Ironically, Hitler didn't want to fight Greece. Politically, they were unimportant to him, and racially, he saw the Greeks as the honorable descendants of Alexander the Great's hoplites. Now, this was unusual for the Nazi leader. He rarely declared respect for any non-Teutons, but in Hitler's world, where race told you all you needed to know about a people, the Greeks were to be respected, even admired. He certainly admired, though quietly, Greece's resistance to Mussolini's attempts to bring that country under his sway. Thus, as plans for Operation Merita were being drawn up, Hitler implemented a policy that said no Greek soldiers were to be held prisoner after the war was over. This, too, was kept quiet, as one can imagine the reaction from Rome. But that was for after the war. There was still a country to subdue. The German victories at Monastir and Skopje in southern Yugoslavia forced the defending armies in those areas to consolidate, to fall back, or whatever euphemism one wants to use. Namely, the Germans were now in control there. And those area's forces, especially around Monastir, had been shielding the largest weakness of the Allies' plan for protecting Greece. Specifically, a gap in between the Greeks in Albania to the northwest and the Allies along the Alakmon line, further to the east. In fact, the only linking up of forces that was done in central northern Greece was done by the Germans in southern Yugoslavia and the Italians in Albania which meant that the aggressors were now in between the remnant Yugoslav forces in the south and the allies in Greece. As concerning those Yugoslav forces, it's hard to stop an attacker when they're already behind you. On April 9th at 11 a.m., forces under General von Kleist captured Nish in southeastern Yugoslavia. The men who had been defending the town were added to the 20,000 prisoners already out of the war. As well, their guns, obsolete as they were, were now added to the growing pile of unused weapons. Seeing their moment had come at last, and deserting a sinking ship, on April 10th, four days into the conflict, yet by now the outcome was obvious to all, Croatia declared its independence. Hitler 
smiled on this. So every Croat who could headed for Zagreb, their new capital. The city, meaning any forces still loyal to Yugoslavia, were unable to resist this revolution, and the capital fell without a German tank having to enter. But if the Croats thought that Serbian control could be thrown off that easy, they were mistaken. Immediately war broke out between the Croats and Serbs within Dalmatia, that part of Croatia along the coast. Yet the newly independent Croats need not have worried. Germany gave the new country a hearty head start as their aircraft came in low to massacre Serbian forces. Truly, Yugoslavia was outmatched in every way, and with the fall of Monastir, captured on April 10th, German forces could now cross into Greek territory. The first Greek civilians of central northern Greece to see the Germans coming at them were near Florina. When Sarajevo capitulated on April 16th, that was it for the disintegrating Yugoslavia. The country, what was left of it, politically surrendered the next day. The Germans found themselves with 250,000 prisoners and started in right away, dealing harshly with the Jews and Serbs in their midst. Yet the Serbs were not ready to just roll over. Thousands escaped or avoided capture in the first place, and made for the mountains. And under General Mikhailovich or Marshal Tito, they resisted the Germans and harassed the Croats. The same story of overwhelming force was visited on Greece. It just took a little longer. As the Germans knew, the main offloading of Allied forces was at Piraeus, in a port city about seven miles to the southwest of Athens. So, it was visited by the Luftwaffe during the first day of hostilities. That very evening, a German aircraft got off the luckiest bomb run of the entire Greek war by hitting the SS Clan Fraser, which was loaded down with munitions. It took a few seconds. A few more men had just enough time to jump from the ship before it exploded, and then exploded some more. The blast was felt in Athens. Windows there crashed in on themselves. Back of the port, which was ruined, nearby ships sank due to the damage they sustained from the blast. A nearby train was also destroyed beyond repair. This was only the first day of battle. The Allied plan of defense was straightforward. It couldn't help but be anything else. Thinking of the Greek mainland as a badly shaped T, its base running vertically, sticking into the Ionian and Aegean seas, the top bar running from Albania to the west all the way to Turkey in the east. And touching that top bar going across, going from left to right, was Albania, a narrow section of Yugoslavia, with the rest touching Bulgaria, where at least 11 German divisions were waiting to invade. In the far northeast corner, along the crossing top bar touching Turkey, lay Thrace. It was to be abandoned. There weren't enough Allied troops, period, much less enough to protect the vital central northern Greece. So, Thrace would have to hold out as best it could, alone. Besides, according to Foreign Secretary Eden, this was probably where Turkish forces would come surging into when they entered the war against Germany. Coming just a bit west from Thrace, 
The fortified Metexas line started at the coast just below Xanthi and above the island of Thassos, and staying just south of the river Nestos, went from the coast about a hundred miles to the west, after going in a northwesterly direction for about fifteen miles. Defending it were the 7th, 14th, and 18th Greek Infantry Divisions. These forces were supported, if that word can be used, by the Greek 19th Motorized Division, some 2,000 men. Yet those men had very little in the way of experience or weapons. Stationed around Salonika, or Thessalonica, the major port city of that region, the Greek 19th had a few Bren carriers, some motorcycles, some captured Italian lorries, and a smattering of tanks. Again, captured Italian ones. That was about it. All told, there were some 70,000 Greek troops responsible for the Metexas line, and the territory to the south of it. Assigned to attack this defensive line were three German divisions of 18th Corps, under General von List, an infantry division, and two reinforced mountain divisions. These forces would hit the defensive line in two places, while the third did an end run around where the fortified line stopped on its far left flank. Once the Metexas line was pierced, all forces of the three divisions would make for Salonika, the headquarters of the Greek Second Army. From there, the troops and panzers would head west and help, hopefully, shatter the Alakmon line where the New Zealand and Australian forces were waiting. Helping the 18th Corps with the Metexas line, on the Greek far right, or German far left, was 30 Corps, under the command of Lieutenant General Otto Hartmann, the 30th composed of the 50th and 164th Infantry Divisions, would, after the defensive line was breached, begin a series of island hopping. In under a month, the 30th would land and occupy Thassos, just off the coast, on April 16th, then take Samothrake, about 30 miles east of Thassos, on April 19th, then Limnos, again about 40 miles to the south, a few days later, then onto Lesbos, about 70 miles to the southeast, on May 4th, and finally on Chios, about 30 miles south of Lesbos, again on May 4th. Those Commonwealth forces so recently landed on those islands would either find themselves fleeing or becoming prisoners of the Third Reich. In central northern Greece, along the Alakmon line, is where the British intended the main defense of Greece to play out. It didn't help that the Germans nor the Greeks shared this view. The Alakmon line starts at the coast, just west of Salonika, and about 30 miles north of Mount Olympus, and follows the Alagmon River, going east for about 20 miles. But then the two split. The river turns and runs to the southwest, whereas the fortified line runs in a haphazardly northwesterly direction for about 80 miles more. Along this paramount defensive line was the New Zealand Division, responsible for way too much territory, and to their left, further along the line, was the 6th Australian Division. Both were under strength. To make matters worse, where the Alakmon line ended, near the Monastir Gap, lay about 60 miles of open territory, heading west, before one makes contact with the veteran Greek forces that were keeping the Italians 
the hell out of Greece. In all, around 12 Greek divisions. And their commander, General Georgius Solakoklo, had every intention of keeping the situation there unchanged. Some of the men the general had with him were from the 12th and 20th Greek divisions, and they had experienced what the Italians could do, and they were in full agreement with their leader. Let the Commonwealth forces worry about the Alekman. This was personal, and that was part of the problem. Just above the Alekman line was the British 1st Armor Brigade along the Vardar Plain. It consisted of the 4th Hussars, a company of rangers, a battery of the 2nd Regiment of the Royal Horse Artillery, as well as a battery of the Northumberland Hussars. There they had room to maneuver, being motorized, and would hopefully, through acts of sabotage, hold up the German tide that was bound to come. Of course, this brigade was never going to stop the German flood before it, but that wasn't their job. The brigade would screen the German movements, hopefully slow down the advance, and weaken it enough to reduce its punching power by the time it reached the Alekman. The British 1st Armour Brigade also knew the skies above them were going to be hostile. Britain was only bringing eight squadrons to Greece, some gladiators, some lemons, some hurricanes, whereas the Germans had at hand some 800 aircraft, the Italians 300. This numerical German superiority continued on the ground. In all, the Germans were bringing, along with the vaunted SS Adolf Hitler Division, five Panzer Divisions, two Motorized Divisions, three Mountain Divisions, and eight Infantry Divisions. As noted, the Metexas Line had three Greek Divisions, the Alekman Line, two understrength and inexperienced Greek Divisions, along with two understrength Commonwealth Divisions the New Zealanders, and the Australians. As for some of those Greek soldiers of the Alekman line, they were still coming up to their position on the eve of the invasion. On April 6th at 5.45 a.m., German forces crossed into Greece. Starting along the top right cross of the Greek T, elements of the German 18th Corps came at the Metexas line. But things did not go well for the invaders. On the first day of the attack, of the 24 Greek forts within the Metexas line, only two succumbed to the Germans, and that was only by destroying them with concentrated artillery and close support air bombing. This was not how it was supposed to go. The Germans had planned on using some of those forts to fortify their positions, once the position was theirs. A bit to the Greek left of the Metexas line, the other forts had been holding out as well. But then, after continuous attacks with explosives and flamethrowers, a few of them within the Perithi and Delvasi areas were occupied by the second and third day of battle. They were then retaken by the Greeks, but by then some German forces had passed through and started either heading towards Salonika, the HQ of the Greek Second Army, or attacked other parts of the Metexas line from the rear. Hitler was right to honor their courage. Still, as for the war in the east, it was all over on April 9th, as the Greek Second Army surrendered. Salonika had been captured, the Metexas line had been pierced, and lastly, the areas to the north, east, and south of it were under German control. 
The valiant defenders of those Greeks along the Metexas line had been all for naught, mostly because, as the Germans had gained control of the Strumica Pass in southern Yugoslavia just days before, Panthers were able to come directly south, just where the Metexas line ended, and make straight for Salonika. It was having that city approached by the Germans from three different directions that caused its surrender. Still, there were elements within the defensive line that refused to surrender on April 9th. Over the next few days, those men earned the Germans' respect, but also more casualties. It only got worse for the Greeks and the Allies from there. Now that the Monastir Gap in central southern Yugoslavia was under German control, it fell on April 9th, German forces poured down, passing by the most northwestern tip of the Alakman line. The German forces didn't have to engage the line. They were driving past it, placing themselves behind it, just by driving due south. Yet the Greek and Allied forces along the Alakman line were kept glued in place by those German forces that had swept around the Metexas line. Because after Salonika was taken, those victorious forces simply turned west and engaged the New Zealanders closest to the coast and the Australians further along the line. The German drive south also meant those battle-hardened Greeks in Albania were about to be cut off from all the other Allied troops. To make matters worse for the Greeks in Albania, and in war it can always get worse, the 9th Panzer Division came out of the all-but-unresisting southern Yugoslavia and linked up with the Italians, facing the determined Greeks. Germans to the front of them, Germans about to be behind them. Without having done anything to the Germans, those bitter Greek men were about to be engaged by the ally of their most hated enemy, such as war. And those Greeks in Albania knew of the fall of the second Greek army. They heard reports that the Alakman line had been engaged. But that's what the Commonwealth forces were for. As long as the Alakman line held, whatever their losses, the Greeks felt this freed them up to face the Italians, but now the Germans as well. Now that northeastern Greece was under German control, General List viewed it as safe to transfer the 5th Panzer Division to the 40th Panzer Corps around the Monastir Gap. And so reinforced, he then broke the abundant forces at the Gap into two groups, an eastern force under the command of 18th Mountain Corps and a western group under 40th Panzer Corps. By the morning of April 10th, the two groups had formed up, but before sending them south, a battalion of an SS regiment was sent in for reconnaissance. Surprisingly to the Germans, it did not meet any serious pushback until the town of Florina was reached, about 10 miles beyond the Yugoslav border. To generalists' amazement, the Monastir Gap was truly open. Without hesitation, he sent the two attack groups through behind the SS battalion. Later that same morning of April 10th, German columns were sighted approaching Vevi, located about 15 miles east of Florina. This put the Germans already level with the northwestern tip of the Alakman line. A company of rangers attached to the 1st Armor Brigade were sent north to impede the invaders with demolitions of the road. 
Still, the Germans came on. And at 11 a.m. on April 10th, British and Australian troops opened fire. The Germans were stymied for the moment, but then neither side moved for the rest of the day. Instead, they both readied themselves for what was coming. Yet, that wasn't exactly true for the Germans. That night of April 10th, a small party approached the defenders, calling out in English. The ruse worked, and ten Commonwealth soldiers were taken prisoner. Realizing what happened, the ranking Australian officer told his men, from 11 p.m. until 5 a.m., they were to stay in their holes and shoot anything that moved or tried to talk to them. The order ended with, You may be tired. You may be uncomfortable. You will continue to do that job unless otherwise ordered. The men held, but only until the afternoon of the next day, April 11th. Then German mortar fire opened up on the Rangers and the town of Davy, along with close-quarter machine gun support. The Australian troops manning the anti-tank guns started getting hit, and this was even before the Panzers had shown up. Something had to be done. So, the Rangers moved forward and managed to quiet a few of the German machine gun units, but none of the artillery, who continued to fire, thinning an already thin line of defense. Again, this Commonwealth force, 25 miles west of the Alakman line, was not supposed to stop the Germans from pouring in from Yugoslavia, but as long as they held the attackers up, then the Greeks to their left and the Commonwealth-slash-Greek forces of the Alakman line to their right were safe from being flanked. Still, by the end of April 11th, it was clear to all that Vevey belonged to the Germans, who moved in the next day, led by the SS Adolf Hitler division. The Aussies moved back, with the Rangers covering their retreat. Yet, just south of Vevey, the Australian force now found themselves commanding the heights over the road the Germans would have to use to continue south. Again, the attackers were stymied. In order to move on, they would have to clear the Aussies off those heights, and that would be a challenge for any group of soldiers. And yet, that's what the fanatic SS regiment was selected for, to take out those guns. During the night of April 12th, the SS troops climbed the heights in the dark, looking for ways to get at the desperate Commonwealth forces. As for the veteran Greek divisions in Albania, well, their life view was simple. The world could go to hell in a handbasket for all they cared. The Italians were not getting past them. But the further south those German forces came from southern Yugoslavia, the more exposed these men were, exposed and about to be cut off. Still, they held their ground. Back on April 9th, just three days into the war, General Wilson, the BEF commander, knew things were not going well. True, he had not been allowed to design or implement the defensive strategy. It's also true that the Greeks were not working as closely as they could be with Wilson, which left him doing the best he could with what he had. And simply, what he had wasn't enough. Not enough men, not enough guns or tanks, and those he did have kept breaking down. As for spare parts, they were somewhere between North Africa or Egypt and the front lines. 
The armored vehicles had already been through a lot in the desert and had traveled 500 miles through Greece once they landed just to get into position. No, the machines had had it. As units of the 1st Armored Brigade moved into position to block the Germans from coming down through Yugoslavia, their tank treads gave out. A routine was quickly developed. The tanks were stripped, drained of fuel, and then set on fire. So, on that day of April 9th, Wilson met with the commanders of the New Zealand and Australian forces. A situation report was put before them. German forces were coming down through Yugoslavia, which would put them just behind the Alekman line that ran to the northwest and put them behind the Greeks in Albania. The Metexas line seemed all but broken and would, in fact, surrender that very day. The conclusion reached from the meeting was the forces along the Alekman line had to be withdrawn and regrouped to the south, which meant all the hard work that had gone into strengthening the line was for nothing. Much of its equipment would have to be abandoned. But no one had time for bitterness. The men had to be moved soonest south, and they would find, under the constant harassment of German air power, and as quickly as they could settle in among the mountains of Serbia, which Mount Olympus was a part of, and dig in. Dig in deep to be able to repulse the German storm that was surely coming. With this plan made, time was needed. So parts of the British 1st Armour Brigade and the 16th Australian Brigade were sent just south of Florina to stall the Germans and thus give the transferring troops time. Thus it was these forces that challenged the Germans at and around Vevey. Within days, and it was probably fear that motivated the men, the Allies had a new defensive line, some 35 miles to the south. And using a part of the Alekman River, this new line was 70 miles long, from the coast to the right of Mount Olympus, in the shape of an arc, with its apex to the north. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. As for the Greeks in Albania, they would have to fall back. It was a military necessity. But General Papagos made it clear, if these men pulled back through no fault of their own, then Greek morale everywhere would collapse. General Wilson replied to this by saying, perhaps, but morale would sink even lower if all those troops were killed or captured. And that was what was going to happen if they didn't start pulling back. That was the reality of the situation. Also on April 9th, the weather turned cold, as in 10 degrees below zero cold. Snow started to fall. The majority of the Commonwealth forces had just come from Egypt or North Africa and were, naturally, wearing their tropical kit. Bombay bloomers, shorts, Bombay bowlers, pith helmets, and simple shirts. 
those British and Australian units that had engaged the Germans had done so with blankets wrapped around them. The freezing men pinned up ground sheets to keep the snow from falling on them. The make-do roofs caved in from the weight of the snow. BEF Commander Maitland Jumbo Wilson had been given this command for various reasons, but certainly for one in particular. The man was unflappable. During the dark days before Dunkirk, he had been in the thick of that, too. The land the Allies controlled, shrinking before his eyes. Yet the man merely gazed at the maps, took in whatever information or latest report was given to him, and calmly issued orders. What else could he do? And now Wilson was about to run up against not German steel, but Greek pride. Those forces in Albania were not going to let the Italians back onto Greek soil. And the only way to do that was to stay at their post and keep those puppets of Mussolini in Albania. Problem was, battle-hardened German troops were about to be in a position to swing towards them and hit them from the rear. This seemed not to worry the Greeks. Such was their hatred for their would-be invaders. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So uh, I'm just going to keep this short and sweet. Uh, I would like to thank Josephine L. from Milwaukee, Oregon, for her donation. And a big thank you to Martin G. for buying a History of World War II podcast ball cap. Um, you can see pictures of those um, on the Facebook page. Um, so again, Martin, thank you very much. It'll be coming to you soon since you're only in Washington, D.C. Um, just to let you know, we're going to um, gear up for the tour again next year. The dates are July the 11th through the 17th, and you can find the details, even though they probably will be tweaked a bit, but not the dates, um, at geekdationtours.com. You can click on upcoming tours and you can see what we have. Basically, what we're going to try next year is to um, just see a lot of different sites um, within the UK, regardless, regardless of the timeline, just see as many different sites as we can in the UK and go from there and just try to do um, try to do it country by country. So we'll see how that goes. So if you can make it next year, um, that would be great. This year, we, we barely, barely missed it. We just didn't have enough people to sign up, so we're, we're doing better. But if you can at all swing it and we'll have the... Uh, information and the, and the prices and all the stuff as soon as we can. We'll be happy to share it with you. But again, just please keep that in the back of your thinking. Um, and again, just to let you know, Christmas is coming up and I'll be putting some stuff on the website and, and Facebook as well. But ball caps, t-shirts, the CDs, I, uh, put, them in, I put the CDs into groups. Um, so for those people who can't quite get the hand the hang of um, an MP3. They can listen to it on CDs. Uh, the, of course, the coffee mugs, which are very popular. So, if you have anybody who's kind of hard to shop for, and you know they're interested in the subject, just let me know. You can always send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail com, and I can see what I can do for you or answer any questions. So, I will see you as soon as I can with the next part of Operation Merita, and we'll see um, what happens to the British how they're going to try to pull off another miracle of Dunkirk. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.